Welcome to Show Your Scars with me, Jordan Angeli. Using my experience as a former professional athlete, I will take you inside the journey back from a devastating injury. Although we may not choose for this to happen to us, we appreciate who we become in the process. Now, let's dive into this week's episode as we share our strength and show our scars with pride. Hey, my podcast peeps, what's going on? I am so excited to be back and to be bringing you guys new interviews here in 2020. 2019 was a amazingly full year for me and one of the things that brought me joy and filled me up was just your reactions to some of the interviews we had here with Show Your Scars podcast. So I wanted to make sure when I had time, I locked a few of these stellar interviews in and gave you guys some of the information that you would want here on this podcast. I had an opportunity just a few days ago to talk to Julie Ebensteiner and she is a physical therapist, a doctorate in physical therapy up in Minnesota. She owns her own company called Loris Athletic Rehab and Performance where she not only does physical therapy but she mends it with sports performance and it's a really cool facility doing some innovative stuff and she is the brains behind it. Uh, Her and her staff there really take to heart this idea of it being a one-on-one interpersonal coaching relationship between PT and the athlete recovering and they are just it's so cool to watch and to see and to hear what she has been doing. A few of the things that we talk about and I don't want to get too much into a lot of introduction because she filled my time so beautifully and we talked for almost 90 minutes about all things ACLs and the risk reduction to return to play. So you're going to find information in here on how to reduce primary and secondary ACLs, information that you as the athlete listening can then go take to your club and feel empowered from this process to say, hey, I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. So I'm going to present this to my team, to my club and say, let's reduce the risk of injury by by 67% if we implement some kind of risk reduction program. So she did, there's information about that in here about returning to play and uh, some good things to hit when you are returning to play and what that process looks like from being cleared to you feeling like you're uh, fully going all out in training and in games. Uh, Really good information and stats there as well. And then we just talk about one of the other things I thought was so interesting is how do you pick a PT? How do you pick an orthopedic surgeon? Something that I am always very interested in and I think it's it's there's a lot behind that she gives you six or seven good questions to ask a PT to ask an orthopedic surgeon in order to feel like you are finding the person that's going to help you get to where you want to go and where your what your goals are so you guys are going to enjoy this without any further ado let's have this chat now with Julie Well, welcome, Julie. I am so excited. I have been clearly in this ACL community world for a long time, and Julie Ebensteiner is like the person that we look to, right? So many um, good things that you've done within this community, and I'm just excited to chat with you. Thanks, Jordan. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so... I wanted to start off because I know a lot about you and I've read some of um, the things you've written and watched you in the Twitter verse forever. Um, But people listening don't know much about you. So maybe a little bit of background of who you are and what you do. 
Yeah. Uh, so I guess this quick background. Um, from Minneapolis originally, played uh, college soccer for the University of Minnesota. Um, then actually got involved with coaching uh, college soccer as assistant coach um, at Iowa State University for a couple years. Came back, um, stayed involved in coaching. Coaching was actually kind of the, my first profession, and I still consider that uh, still part of my life as I still coach now. But um, kept involved with Division Three soccer coaching while I was going to PT school at the University of Minnesota. Um, graduated from PT school, worked for an orthopedic uh, private practice, um, did that for not, uh, about a year and then got really frustrated uh, with um, uh, the business was good. The people running it, the ownership, everything else was great. Coworkers were great, but it was just the model, especially when with treating athletes. Um, and I got really interested in um, lower body injuries and especially ACL injuries. And a lot of that has to do, I, I think, just with my soccer background. I never had an ACL injury. I had a, mm-hmm. a scare once. So I had to go get an MRI. Um, but I left that orthopedic group, uh, and just decided to start my own independently. And I, uh, I just, because I was frustrated with the model and I thought there was a better way to be able to treat athletes, uh, just as far as like time and resources, as far as space and just the rehab model for an athlete versus kind of general population is a little bit different, um, or was being treated a little bit different. Um, so then started my own company called Loris, uh, athletic rehab and performance. Uh, that was back in 2010, um, and then kind of went through numerous, uh, I guess, evolutions of that. Right now, um, I have a facility just right outside of downtown Minneapolis, about 7,000 square feet. Uh, I have sports performance combined with that, so I, I have uh, coaches, full-time coaches on staff for sports performance, uh, and we blend we blend the um, the rehab part and the sports performance part. So we have athletes that come in a lot of a lot of soccer, um, obviously. Um, but we have athletes that come in that have never been injured, don't want to be injured, and our goal is to keep them that way. Uh, so they're just training uh, for their sport, uh, training for performance, training to, to, to stay healthy. Um, and then we have the other side where we have, I have, uh, I mainly specialize in ACL injuries. Um, so then those that are rehabbing back from ACL, um, late stage rehab, which typically a lot of times gets, gets missed or mismanaged uh, for a lot of times for resources and just because of yeah. the, the medical model I was kind of talking about. But uh, so we we start to blend kind of the sports rehab with the sports performance, especially in the late stage. Uh, and then we have some, I knew back, uh, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years ago that some of the testing for return to play, some of the traditional testing that's been published, um, it would, people would be scoring well, quote unquote, well on those tests like passing, quote unquote passing, but you could tell that they were doing things completely different. And, uh, you know, the way they were accomplishing that wasn't the same. So um, when I built the facility that I'm in right now, five years ago, um, then I wanted to make sure I had technology that was involved with that. So that could mm-hmm. measure some of those things that I couldn't, I couldn't quantify, uh, you know, just by looking at. Um, so uh, we've incorporated some force plate technology, some motion capture technology, and it sounds really fancy, but actually in the number of years of using it, I've actually, we've actually simplified it down quite a bit to look at just some really key things that we're interested in right now. Um, yeah, and then I still continue coaching. So I, um, I coach at a Division three school here. I'm an assistant coach at a Division three school here in, uh, uh, in St. Paul, University of St. Thomas, so I get to do that in my free time. 
too. So, that's Reader's Digest version. Yeah, I like that. Cliff Notes of Julie. It was good. And so many things in there that I want to unpack because I think it's interesting that you know, the doers in life and the go-getters like see a problem and then they address it and try to fix it, right? So you saw this problem within uh, rehab and how rehab was treated, especially for um, athletes. And you thought, okay, I got to go do something on my own. And I I think that's really interesting. But before we get into that, I want to know why, why you chose PT. You said you grew up playing soccer. You played soccer at University of Minnesota. You were goalkeeper, which yep. you, you're, I mean, goalkeepers one of, are one a of different breed. <laughs> I know. Um, if you watch the NCAA women's soccer championship, <laughs> you got a little taste of how cool and crazy goalkeepers are with uh, Meyer oh my there. Gosh. How crazy, how crazy was she? <laughs> In hey, the best well, way. Yeah. Oh yeah. With the Stanford keeper. Yes. Yeah. And Hey, she backed it up, but you got to have confidence to play that position. But let, let's give a shout out to the, to the North Carolina keeper, Dickie, who just drilled it. <laughs> Oh yeah, like like put a ball down and drilled it right up the middle. It was like, incredible. Serious touch. It yeah. was incredible. So many cool keeper that, that situations. Was a, that was a great match. Yeah, yeah. So you played goalkeeper growing up. Played in Minnesota. And was it? Do you remember a specific point? You said it was through sports that you wanted to then um, become a physical therapist. But why? Oh yeah, great question. Um, I've always liked athletics. Like I've, I, and I got two older brothers, so I've, I've, and I guess this is always like a canned response. Like, why'd you get into PT? Why do you like sports? Um, yeah. but no, I always, I really love sports, all kinds of sports and I don't, I don't care the sport. The other night I was, I have a, a diver I'm, I'm rehabbing and I went to diving practice for two hours and it was fascinating. And I just love to see how athletes, um, just, just how they learn skills and execute skills. And I love watching how coaches teach and that sort of thing. So I always loved sports. I really, I had a really good anatomy teacher in high school. Uh-huh. Um, and he, like that really stuck with me. So I loved learning about just how the body works. Um, and then I, although I would consider myself actually an introvert, I, I enjoy helping people and I kind of enjoy the one-on-one stuff. Um, I had some really, really, really good coaching mentors in uh, in Minnesota, and actually, looking back on it, I it was like I was lucky to have the people I was surrounded by because now I realize like how good of a situation I just mm. happened to fall into as far as coaching mentors. Mm-hmm. But to me, PT really is coaching. It's 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 coaching, and then it's the science background. But it's a people thing. It's coaching, and uh, you know, and then got the sports involved. So that's. I guess that's the big thing. Um, but the nice thing with PT, for those that are looking to, to get into it, um, there's so many there's so many different areas you can get into with it, and so many different specialties. So I always said if I wasn't doing sports, if I wasn't doing sports PT, I would love to work with uh, like neuro rehab, like people with um, that have had spinal cord injuries and yeah. trying to just get them, you know, they have a goal and trying to get back. Very much, I mean, they're very much like athletes and need to train like athletes in a very in very similar ways, even though they're in different situations. So yeah, yeah, it's been fun. I love how you relate it to, to coaching, right? Because it really is, it is such a special bond between the athlete or the person going through rehab and the 
physical therapist and probably one of the I would imagine one of the pain points that you had when you were working for a, a bigger orthopedic group is you wanted to have that connection and it, it is hard when you're just uh, you seem to be shuffling through people one after the other yeah that was the big thing and that was a stressor because I, I always call it conveyor belt style medicine where it's like all right, this patient walks in, you literally have 30 minutes on the clock, you better do something productive because you're, you're getting billed for it. And unfortunately, you don't get paid to have conversation with people, but mm. that conversation uh, can be the most meaningful thing you do of the day just because of information collection and getting an idea of the perspective of where they're from and, and motiv- you know, learning what motivates them and all of a sudden what's causing the problem, that sort of thing. Um, so it was like you know, 30 or 45 minutes, like patient shows up if they're on time, you know, you're boom, you're trying to do something with them in a very confined space a lot of times. And then, then boom, the next person, you know, you got to document all that. And don't get me started on all that sort of stuff. Because documentation is probably the number one thing people hate about in healthcare. Um, and then, then the next person's like, you're boom, you're into the next room right away, or you're onto the next patient. And it was just like one after another, after another. And I just felt like, I don't know if you've ever seen like the I Love Lucy episode where she's on the conveyor belt yes. trying to like wrap wrap chocolate mm-hmm. that's what i felt like i was like all of a sudden this conveyor belt's like speeding up and you're trying to keep up with the whole thing and then eventually you're just trying to get through your day and that's not to me that that's not meaningful and that was a stressor for me so i would i'm the type of person where if i'm gonna do some i would rather do a smaller subset of things that do it really well than to try to tackle a bunch of stuff but just kind of not you know like just do enough to get by um, and I just kind of listened to that gut feeling on, on stuff. And so now, you know, I don't have to see 15 patients a day. I can see four to six a day. And I, I can know, you know, I, I know everything about their situation uh, because I have time to talk to them. Right. And have time to get background on stuff. I got time if I need to go to their practices or time to speak to another, you know, to their sport coach or to, to whatever. I've gone to sports psychology uh, um, meetings with my patients to try to figure out, you know, goal setting or whatever, how we can all work together. So I got time to do that. So I just feel like I can do a better, better job. And not coaching. You would never, well, I guess I would never, you know, just like, oh, we're on to the next team. Like, you know, you just don't really care about your players or, you mm-hmm. know, if they're accomplishing goals and stuff. You know, you, you tell your players not to go through the motions. So, you know, so they would expect the same back from you. So I just think you can do a better job when you can really make sure the patients or the athletes at the center of things and they're all working together. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Is that one of the biggest things you've noticed through your time as a physical therapist, just how much the communication and the interpersonal, like the relationship that you have with the athlete, how much that helps them? Is that a, a big factor in, do you believe in returning to play and the recovery and getting through some of these these tough parts of physical therapy? Oh, huge. Well, yeah, because if you if the athlete doesn't have confidence, uh, as you know <laughs> very yeah. well, uh, yeah. that, that ACL injury, that is a that can mess with you confidence wise. And just and a lot of those injuries are happening non-contact. And it's like, well, what the heck? No one even hit me. And then all of a sudden my knee gives out you know yeah. and so this is the trust the trust factor you know and then you hear about the the re-injury rate and all this other stuff and it's like you know am I going to be the same again so having somebody that understands um what your situation is what your training's like what your sport is like what you're trying to get back to so understands that first but then second of all has confidence in what they're doing 
and not an arrogance, not a recklessness, mm-hmm. but that has a, you know, this is going to be, this will be challenging. This is safe for you. This is something you need to do. Right. Um, and, and, and you're going to be able to do this. Like, and here is the plan that we're going to plan out so that then the athlete can, can figure out, okay, this is, these are kind of my reference points and, and I'm going to be, you know, this, I need to do this today and it's fine. And I'm going to, I'm going to believe this person and then can kind of, then you can help be their confidence for them until they're starting to, to get their feet under them, you know? It's so but, true. Uh, it really is. Yeah. The, you're almost, and if you want to, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you're almost, as being on the other side of things, as the athlete, I was searching for that and looking to my physical therapist, specifically the one I had here in Colorado, and, and just like leaning on him so much to know that he had that belief in me, that he, that I could trust him and what he was asking me to do. And, and that starts to build within you. Like you almost just feed off of that from him or her yep. and it, it does, it transforms you. Yeah, and many, mo- most athletes are motivated. They want a challenge, um, you know, so, and, and you know, and I think this is a problem with rehab, a lot of, especially in-stage rehab, it's not, e- a, a ACL rehab is not an easy rehab. Mm. It is very long and boring uh, a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, and it gets, it gets very, it can get monotonous at times, and it's, it's truly a marathon, both mentally and physically, on, on things. So you you need to you need to have somebody that's going to be able to push you through that, um, and and knows the whole plan on that. Uh, just like just like you know any athlete training for a sport, you know there's if if you're not training kind of on the edge of uncomfortableness, you know you got to keep pushing your limits on stuff and can't just be safe with stuff. So you want you want to have a coach or a, or a PT that that's going to push you, but then also you know, on the injury side of stuff, you know that they're also, you know, going to be safe about stuff too. Um, and have a, have a big plan in mind. So. And is that, I'm curious to know what intrigued you so much because you were working with a lot of different patients and now you've really honed in on ACL specifically, right? Most of, I would, would you say the majority of your patients are ACL rehab patients? Yeah. 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 Like 80. 85 to 90% right now. Yeah. So what was it about the injury, the recovery? Uh, maybe it was the research that you had done that made you want to stick in it. What was it specifically that you were like, okay, this is what, this is what I want to have a, like you said earlier, right? I want to hone in on this I, and I want to work specifically on this to really uh, make a difference. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the first thing was a- ACL, unfortunately, is such a common injury in soccer. You know, soccer is one of the top sports, uh, soccer mm-hmm. and basketball, especially on the girls' side um, or the female side, uh, where that injury is happening. So naturally, um, it's an injury where I'll, you know, I'll be typically a lot of times we'll be working with soccer players, which is something I, you know, that's something I know really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and it's, a, it's a longer, it's a longer rehab, and there's a lot of components also with the rehab if you do it right that are strength and conditioning based. And that's something I feel completely comfortable with too, just uh, from a academic background, but then also from my athletic background too. Um, you know, so I don't know. It was just, I guess it was, a po- it was mainly the population uh, that I would be working with. And then it's a, it's a longer rehab where you're really training for something then, and that really brings out the coaching element as well. And then it's a, it's an injury that is, it's, it's an injury that typically still we're not doing a great job of doing the rehab because there's still right. the, the second as a field there's a the, that second injury is happening 25 to 30 percent of the time 
still. And that's been a big motivator. That was a big motivator for the technology that I invested in and just the model was, can we, can we stop this second injury from happening? Um, and then can we, can we then figure out a way to get the, get an, the a primary injury or a first injury? Can we stop, can we do everything possible to, to get the, 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 the number of times that's happening, the percentage of the time that's happening, you know, way down. So yeah. With the University of St. Thomas, we've been putting in a, one of the first things when I, when I got on staff there, uh, uh, must have been seven years ago now, the head coach, uh, you know, said, hey, I want you to teach the team uh, a proper warm-up so that, because they had been having ACL uh, issues. And then, you know, now we, we've gone, you know, multiple years without an ACL injury. We had 28, we have 28 players on the roster. This year we had 28 of 28 players available for every single game, but I think one, and that, that was our left back. who had a broken nose. Wow. Um, and then we went, we went deep into the playoffs. We had 28 of 28 players available at the end of the year. We went into 10 overtime games. We were undefeated. We had, we had ties, but we, we either won or tied all of our overtime games. Um, you know, we, our athletic trainer, honestly, it was a joke because our athletic tra- who was awesome. She was bored at the end of the year. Yeah. Literally had, had nothing to do. Um, which was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I don't know. I got off on a tangent, but that, no, that's a good uh, tangent. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, and it's good to have. Hey, I'll take a board athletic trainer any day when um, you're right. putting in the work. So there's two things that you mentioned there that I really want to dig into a little bit deeper. Is you've done a lot of research on primary and secondary ACL injuries, and it, what you were just speaking to, and what you've implemented with your college right now, is this risk yep. reduction for primary injuries. Like, how do we reduce the risk of an ACL injury happening? Which it needs to happen. You and I have had conversations about this. How yep. it is an epidemic across the United States of the number of athletes who are tearing their ACL. It shouldn't be this way. And I just, I'm curious to know what have you implemented? What have you found that is crucial in implementing to, to help reduce this risk of injury? Yeah. Well, and we could get into the whole like youth, youth, uh, sports model and yeah. scheduling and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. I'll like maybe some rest. Even. We'll just say like the kids need some rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 don't, yeah, anyway, <laughs> so that can be a whole podcast in itself, but no, so say, say we're not going to change sports specialization, say we're not right. going to change youth clubs, uh, like for, and they're getting, the, I'm sure they're getting pressure from parents too, whatever. there's lots of pressures, there's motivations from all over things, but you know, scheduling, let's say we're not going to change all that. The two biggest things right now that, that absolutely every single athlete could do uh, and every club could implement if they want to. Uh, one, uh, the warm-up. So injury prevention warm-up. Super easy one, FIFA 11 plus. And, and that's, there's a ton of research on that. Ton of research on that. For female athletes especially, um, if they're doing that three times a week, uh, that, there's like a 67% reduction in non-contact ACL. Wow. And coaches aren't using it. Yeah. Everyone knows the research is out there. This thing has been, these warmups have been researched and researched and researched and researched. And then there's been, re- there's been research studies on the research. <laughs> um, they work. Yeah. But they're also finding out that coaches aren't implementing it. So that's, that's one thing. The second, and it doesn't have, 
FIFA 11 plus is the one that if a coach had no idea what they were doing for right. an athlete, I would even love to see this where the athletes just take it upon themselves, do a little research and be like, okay, this is the warm-up. or hey coach, can we this is the warm-up we should be doing. But unfortunately, a lot of athletes don't care about injuries until they're injured. Uh-huh. Um, but but if, but if no one knew anything, just go to look up the FIFA 11 plus. There's there are videos on how to do things. There are, you know, there's educational stuff you can teach yourself. If you're motivated, you know, to, to want to learn about it. And honestly, it's like learning any other skill. Like if, if you don't know how to if you want to learn how to do a bicycle kick, you can you can absolutely look up and educate yourself on what the technique of a bicycle kick is. Right. Or, or whatever. Half volley, whatever it is, whatever soccer skill, uh, you know, whatever coaches do it all the time tactics on stuff they're looking up stuff well this is just a different type of skill or a different type of tactic so to so to speak and they just need to make it just has to be a priority that they want to learn it but i don't i don't understand why coaches aren't wanting to keep or i shouldn't say aren't wanting but like how do we get them to care a little mm-hmm. bit more and make it a priority so they're keeping their athletes uh uh healthy going into college and we can get back to that in a second but the second thing um, a good, a good, uh, intelligent, fundamental strength and conditioning program. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, it could be 45 minutes a day, or sorry, 45 minutes twice, twice a week, 45 minutes a day, twice a week. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be something where athletes, you know, it's not about how tired somebody gets or how tough something is, but it, just finding someone in their area that knows, like, what are the key good bang for your buck fundamental stuff because it doesn't need to be fancy it doesn't have to be super uh sophisticated but if especially uh for athletes that aren't playing other sports um the strength and conditioning piece is huge you you tie that with the Mm warm-up these injuries are going to go way down significantly then if you could start getting the coaches if we can start changing the model a little bit more on on uh you know rest um, like a, a great example is if, you know, if you're playing ECNL and you've got, or DA, but e, ECNL is probably a better example right now. And you've got two games or even three games on back to back to back days. Right. Uh, and then, then you have a week of training and then you're going to have two more games because you're going to go to whatever you're going to play two other pairs of games the yeah. following weekend. So say you got five, four to five games in like a eight to nine day span why are coaches putting scrimmages on when full field scrimmages on Wednesday? Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. Like stuff, stuff like that. Just getting out, you know, or, or coaches that, um, I've heard, you know, I've heard of this before too, like right before nationals for ECNL, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to do two days and we're gonna do a lot of running to make sure that, that you get in shape. Well, you're not going to get in shape Mm-mm. in one, one week, but no. what you can do is you can completely fry out your team heading into nationals. Right. And that's, that's that's maybe not to to the fault of the coach uh you know it's just can we educate the coaches a little bit more because sometimes you know the logic is well more is better until you get you know that isn't necessarily true when it comes to the human body you know right just you know if we can change part of it on the education side too that would help absolutely i think it is a education not only for the coaches it's the players it's the parents it's the whole structure of saying hey this is um this is what you're getting out of your athletes right now and this is what you could be getting because you could be just adding this in this strength and conditioning this risk reduction and you could be keeping 
67% more of your players on the field for longer periods of time, right? Like the, those, yeah. it, it is educating them of what really it can do. Um, and it's out there, right? It is out there, but it, it's hard to impact that person's world, that person's life, that person's team when it isn't something that they see on a day-to-day basis or it's not their life that changed, right? Um, yeah. Our, at St. Thomas, we, uh, it's become such a culture that our, you know, our first day of preseason, yeah, our the very the very first thing they learn is our warm up, and our our warm up is not the FIFA 11 plus, but it's uh-huh. based off of the principles of that. It's a it's a it's a program I put together and have tweaked over the years, right? Um, but it's it's 10 minutes. It takes 10 minutes exactly. Um, we do it every single practice. Uh, if we have two days, we do it every we do it both practices uh-huh. um it's the one thing but the head coach it isn't i mean it is me a little bit but the head coach has made sure that that has been a priority um that they get it in but the first thing they learn preseason is the warm-up yeah so our warm-up is led by all of our players so i don't That's even really incredible. have to do a whole lot the first day of practice i just tell the upperclassmen okay get the warm-up started and then we start dialing in some stuff and i i'm 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 explaining a little bit as they're doing it to the mm-hmm. freshmen, just kind of, kind of some key points on it. But then it's uh, the coaches are around. Every, like we aren't setting up cones. The coaches are around every single time they're going through that warm up. So the players know like this is something that's important to the coaches. Mm. If it's important to the coaches, then it better be important to me. But what happens a lot of times is the coaches say, uh, "Yeah, here's this warm up. I don't really know how to coach it, so you guys go do that down there," um, which. You know, if you got a kid that has come back from a from a uh, ACL injury, they might care about it, right? But then the other ones are like, "Well, why am I doing goofing that? off?" You know? Yeah, yeah. So I I try to make sure as the as the season goes on, every once in a while, I'll pipe up if something gets a little sloppy here, you know, or they got to just need a little reminder on stuff. No different, no different than any other activity you would be doing with with the ball. Yeah, you, know, you just clean up things as you go, so that it, as the year's going on, it just keeps getting sharper and sharper and sharper, and then they, you know, they start to care about it a little bit more. So that's a really good point of having the coach around because I have seen even it be implemented. And um, when I was working with a Colorado Rush here, I was working with a physical therapist to implement or. or similar program to FIFA 11, um, just something, some kind of activation warm up, right? Something to get them, uh, ready to, to prepare their bodies, to be ready to get what they want out of it in the session. And it was, it was hard for me because it was me. And at times I would have three or four teams that were all training at the same time and they'd all do the warm up together, which in concept is cool, right? The whole, it it makes it like a club wide thing, but I can't, I can't see everybody's how everybody's doing everything and it was really it felt very stressful for me because I was like there were some kids that I knew all the time were going to be focused and we're going to be um making sure that they were doing it correctly but then to watch the 40 other kids it was just it put a lot of pressure on me so to keep it broken up to make sure that the coaches are there is a really good point where it then does feel like hey this is important not just to you but to your teammates and to me and to our team Right. Well, but you got to treat it also too. If coaches, if, if they get themselves put in that position where there's more players, um, just treat it, still treat it like any other skill. If you were, if you had a group of players and they are all working on, uh, I don't know, say it's their, say, say it's their, they're just, uh, interpassing with one another and mm-hmm. just first touch. Like maybe you just want to take the first touch across your body. 
Yeah. And you're finding out that like everyone is like taking a like it's just a, too long of a touch. Yeah. Right. Because they're just you know whatever. So you you got to pick your battles. You're not gonna fi- you're not gonna be able to fix every little thing. But if you find out that you know if you see that the group has one problem that a majority of players are having, maybe you just stop it there and address that one thing. So like with the warm up, try not to make a like I always tell people when you're implementing it, just teach it in chunks. So maybe don't teach all the components of it yeah. right off the bat. Uh-huh. Teach the first few things, get really good at it, and then just pick your thing for the day. Like so for for our warm up. You know, sometimes they'll get a little sloppy with jumping, so they're landing a little shallow. Mm-hmm. So then I'll just make the I'll just make the cue of like, hey, land like a lion, and I use anatomy or, or not anatomy. I use a I use that too. Analogies. I use analogies <laughs> so uh, they'll remember that. Yeah. Um, you know, so then all I got to say is, you know, lion, and yep, I'm saying that to a bunch of college athletes, but then they remember it, and now they're bending their knees more. Um, so a lot of times if coaches really looked at the warm-ups just the same as they would any other hmm. skill, they'll find that like, well, okay, if that was a soccer skill, I would probably do this. I'm not going to try to fix 500 things. I'm just going to try to find the biggest bang for my buck with that group and just fix that on the day. Yeah. And then all of a sudden people get a little bit better with that. So that's something maybe to help with coaches. The other thing is the, the, so the key components in an injury prevention warm-up, um, one, some sort of glute. Uh, strengthening work mm-hmm. okay a lot of times you'll see mini mini band stuff right um and it's it's important that players are actually you know feel like like uh you know they're getting their glutes working with that yeah um, you can call it glute activation or whatever you want but just that they're getting some sort of strengthening stimulus to glutes that's a really important thing which is why a lot of times you'll see the mini bands which i'm sure you're super familiar with mm-hmm. um and then uh the other part is uh, jumping, so plyometric, and really a big focus on landings and landings with control and landings with um, good balance and landings with uh, um, good knee bend. So they're okay. they're not landing, you know, stiff legged like right. a, like a giraffe. They're landing more like a like a lion that would be jumping down from a cliff, you know. So right. that's a, that's a big thing. There's some hamstring exercises in there that are that have been super valuable that are in the FIFA 11 plus. And then the other thing is getting a little bit of you know getting getting their body used to working fast so okay. a lot of, a lot of times acl injuries are happening early on in a match or early on in a in a uh um half and sometimes you'll hear about people when they have a second injury it was like within minutes of like their first couple minutes back on the field sometimes the first time back yeah, but yeah. just getting their body having to stop and start and stop and start and stop and start in a very efficient manner so coaches are like well i'm not sure what i'm supposed to do don't get too hung up on the exercises. Just, just try to find something where it's good glute activation or a glute stimulus. Stimulus. Mm-hmm. The plyometric part is key, especially with good control. Um, and then getting used to ramping up that bot, the the brain and the body of having to, to both, uh, you know, move quickly but also stop quickly because we know a lot of these injuries are happening uh, when there's a deceleration, mm-hmm. either landing or, or or planting and cutting. Right. Those are really good just like a quick little four things that need to be incorporated into those warm-ups. And I think that's going to be really helpful, even for people who are listening who maybe aren't coaches, but can then relay that information to their coach or use it for themselves and how they're going to get themselves prepared and ready to train in whatever sport that they have. So, and when you're saying good strength and conditioning program, you're talking like um, some kind of, 
it's not, I think as athletes, we think strength and conditioning and we automatically go to like thinking about running, 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 but it is, you want to incorporate that strength into it too, right? Uh, Hugely because um, I would, I would say most female athletes, especially female soccer players are under strong, meaning they're not strong relative to their body, uh, body weight. Um, So in the, the, the resistance training with with and it you can yes there are some very good body weight exercises you can do but it has to be challenge it it needs to be sufficiently challenging to the to the to the muscles uh in the in the body um and there you're gonna have extra benefit because if the if the body is given a stress and then also then given enough rest time afterwards it's going to build itself back stronger so the strength and conditioning piece of it isn't just muscles and muscle strength but it's also then helping with tendons and ligaments um Mm. and bones and and making sure those are getting built back back stronger too but with soccer you're gonna your soccer is what i would consider a very a very like anterior front of the side body dominant sport there's a reason there's a reason why uh soccer players you know have very big quads Right. Um, you know, so you're going to use certain muscle groups and part of the strength and conditioning that's going to help, especially in season is can you then keep the opposite muscle groups as strong as well? So, um, so you're keeping, keeping the body a little bit more in balance. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we do a lot of stuff here. Um, uh, we'll do a lot of stuff that is, uh, more kind of single leg dominant. We'll do, we'll do, we'll do a two legged type lift too, but we'll do a lot of single side dominant stuff just because, a lot of times you can't you can't hide right to left side differences on a single leg exercise mm-hmm. or a split stance type of exercise. Mm-hmm. So we'll make sure we're trying to trying to find every which way that they can't hide compensations in what they're doing. Right. So and even then you still I always say the best athletes are the best compensators. They'll make things look good. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes even when they aren't. So you got to kind of outsmart the body so they can't screw it up. <laughs> that is actually very true. I I feel like. You do. You learn the little tricks and like you have to learn how to shy away from those tricks and really make sure that you're working on full body strength. And um... I, I had a gymnast in uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, late stage rehab it was actually her second ACL. I hadn't seen her before. She was coming to me for just the first time uh, evaluation. And um, she so a super high level gymnast and um, second ACL and uh, I just was looking at just a, doing a tuck jump. So she's, she's, she's just jump. Well, first she was doing a, like a squat jump uh-huh. and then a tuck jump. She's, she's jumping knees to knees to chest and landing. Right. Looks perfect. Looks great. Perfect. Looks very equal. Everything looks great. I put her on a force plate and I, I have her do a single leg vertical jump. So now she doesn't have her other leg. Uh-huh. She doesn't have her other leg for the, for the push off. Uh, she was the her surgical side was at forty percent compared to her non-surgical side. But when you gave her both legs, she looked really good. Wow! So she could hide it. But that's her. That is her sport. That is why she is so good because she was always it was always on the presentation of how things look. Hmm. So she could make things look really good. Right. Which was a double-edged sword. So yeah. That is crazy. And I think it leads me into this next question when you were first talking about. Um, you said you went off on a tangent, but you were talking about primary and secondary injuries and um, that I think probably the testing aspect of what you have is a big 
way that you're helping trying to reduce this rate of secondary injuries if I you know if I'm reading into that correctly yep yeah because I think uh well I think two things a couple things in the that I think there's a couple things missed um with uh handling the 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 uh handling the person coming back from a first one so that they aren't having a second one yeah um I think that I think the test well first of all there are a lot of Unfortunately, there are a lot of, and part of this is just the system too. You have a lot of PTs uh, that don't, they'll see an occasional ACL, you know, so they're, yeah. they're, uh, right. They're know, not seeing them all the time like you. Right. And you can't be, you, it's very hard to be on top of all the information of everything that's going on all the time, which goes back to why I tried to specialize. So if, if you had me like manage, I don't know, um, like someone comes to me with a wrist or an elbow, if like, if a pitcher came in and had Tommy John surgery, they wouldn't be coming in here because I would send them to somebody else who's really good at that because right. I wouldn't. I, that's not my wheelhouse. So, but a lot of times, just in regular orthopedics, you have you have you have PTs that have occasional ACLs, right? Um, so they're not on top of all the you know what should get, be getting test, tested. But also within that, there's a lot of, still just in sports PT. There's a lot of people that aren't using like bet like objective measures to make decisions on stuff mm-hmm. so but then on top of that there aren't the the tests that are being done that goes back to these so like these hop tests which i'm sure you're probably super familiar with mm-hmm. so a single leg a single leg hop for distance right you do three on on one leg you do three on the other like alternating and you you measure how far you jump and then looking at control on that sort of up too and then there's a three hop per distance and then there's a three hop crossover per distance and then there's a six meter time hop so you have these traditional these four traditional hop tests which it, passing those is really 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 important and there's a lot of people that aren't even doing those tests but what i found was high level athletes and by high level i'm not saying like just professional players but with like the with the, the kid who's on the ecnl program or in the da yeah uh, or on the ecnl team or in the da that is chasing that college scholarship so that type of athlete very good soccer player even if they're passing those tests at 100 percent, i'm finding that they're probably closer to 70 percent at that time so the testing part needs to be better Hmm. for um because on the force play with a single leg vertical jump a lot of times that's where i'm finding a lot of the differences right on things so um so the tests need to be better that's one piece of it but then another piece of it is just the timeline so unfortunately, there's still people who think four to six months is Ugh, the norm for ACL rehab. And there's also a group of people that think, well, if so-and-so got back at six months, then I'm going to get back at five months. And that, mean, that means that my rehab was better because I'm back faster. Right. But they aren't accounting for biology. And I was joking on a, I was joking with somebody else on a different podcast about the whole biology part. If people like, if people have, if we have figured out how to speed up biological healing, <laughs> then pregnancies would not be nine months at this point. Me, that would have, that would have been sped up by now, right? True. Um, so biologically, our body takes time to heal, and when that that new ACL gets, you know, when when they reconstruct that ACL, they're they're rebuilding with a different tissue. Um, you know, and then putting that, you know, securing that into your knee joint, and then you're waiting for your body to uh, to incorporate that tissue, and then let it just become almost like it was always there. Right. So that takes time, mm-hmm. and then the strength takes time. So you can't rush all that. So if if 
athletes were, were pushing from six months to nine months. For every month after six months, up to nine months that you wait, you reduce your risk by 51%. So just waiting that extra amount of time and continuing to rehab and do things, you're making a significant reduction. So I try to, whenever possible, we're waiting until nine months on that. Now, that doesn't mean that they're sitting around doing nothing. Right. You know, they can do a lot of stuff with their team, and that brings me to the last point. So then the last part is the on-the-field management. So you don't want to go from ACL, like PT rehab, and say you pass all the tests and all these outcome measures, everything looks great, all the objective measures look great. At six months, you you look awesome. And I have a kid right now, that's a ninth grader, actually, that's in that, pretty close to being in that boat right now. And I said, yeah, everything looks great, but now we got to manage all the stuff on the field. So mm-hmm. we are going to sequentially, so your time, you know, non-contact te- technical work where there isn't a chance anyone, there, there's no opponent around you. Right. But it's just technical non-contact work, but we're going to build up that. Then we're going to build up, uh, uh, then we're going to build up non-contact. So maybe you're a, maybe you're a neutral player who has a two-touch restriction. So now you can play in and play in possession games, but no one can tackle you and you're not going to tackle anyone else. So then can we start to build up that? Then can we put you into uh, full contact, but now you're in, in a team environment with your team, so it's friendly fire, which is going to be different. You know, different. Yep. Your teammates tackling you typically are going to be different than in a game. Mm-hmm. And then once you've gone through that for a number of weeks and built up that load, then, then putting you back into a, a game. But when you go back into games, that's going to be, that is going to be a slow progression back into games too. So that you're not like just jumping in and playing 45 minutes right off the bat. Right. But that a lot of times is missed, um, that we're not building that part up. Uh, and, and again, that a lot of times we'll go back to the model of healthcare and, you know, a, you're not, a, a PC is not going to get paid to do that in a typical insurance model, right. let alone have the knowledge of like what does a soccer practice actually look like you know yes um but that part gets that part will get mismanaged and then the last part is your rehab's not and you know this better than anyone your rehab is never typically over yes because you have you're going to be in a constant state of injury prevention again so that you know the warm-ups and then the strength and conditioning piece and all the things that you did in rehab to get you back to where you were, you can't just throw that out the window right. the minute you get clear to go back and play. You, you, it is going to have to be a lifestyle change to keep yourself healthy. Yeah, and, and to, to back up on the injury stuff too, the thing I forgot besides the warm up and the strength and conditioning, nutrition, Oof. just nutrition, basic nutrition. Yeah, because that's the building block for your body. And if you're tearing your body down, you have got to give it the building supplies to mm-hmm. build it back up. Um, and then the sweet part, I always sleep. tell athletes in here that if, if you're building a, if you have a big concrete wall, like with concrete blocks, every time you do something physically, well, you could argue anything stressful to your body, but especially physically stressful, soccer practice, strength and conditioning, you're taking a block out of that wall. Okay. When you eat, that's putting the block back. Mm-hmm. And then when you sleep, that's when the blocks need to go back. That's when you're going to build the wall back. Right. You're sleeping. So if you're, if you're not eating well, you don't have the building supplies. If you're not sleeping well, then the workers can't go to work because they work at night, right? Yeah. The workers can't go to work to build the wall. And I said, your body's really smart. So if you take one brick out uh, and if you give it enough building supplies and enough time, enough sleep, it's actually going to put two bricks back in the wall because it knows it needs a bigger wall because it had a physical stress. But a lot of times, especially youth athletes, uh, and a lot of it goes into homework and stress and and, uh, all like over, you know, schedules and all this other stuff, 
they're taking one brick out of the wall and they're not even putting one back. And then they're yeah. taking another brick out of the wall and they're not putting that back. And then you wonder why athletes are breaking down. Yeah. Or they get to college and they've done everything they can to earn that scholarship and they can't compete because they they're broken. Yeah. That's a whole, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Right. I would love to see if I was in charge of a youth club, which I have no desire to right now. <laughs> but if, if I was in charge of a youth club and even for colleges, I would keep track of how many of my athletes, well, what are the major injuries in the club? Mm-hmm. And then, so what are they, ha- what kind of injuries are happening within your club? That's just good. Not If you have a low injury, that's great for obviously marketing of your club. That should be a huge right. thing as you yeah. take care of your players. Um, but then also just as a feedback to the club of what they can do better. But then, uh, for, and then how many of those athletes from your club go, go on to college and, um, make it their, you know, their full four years and aren't, aren't, um, stopping because their, their body broke down. And right. I get that part of it is the management of the coaches at the, at the college. But part of it also is if you, if you kept them strong, if you built them strong and resistant or, or resilient and took care of them as a youth player, that is going to help them four years down the road. I'd love to see the same thing with colleges too, of like, Hey, you know, when players, you know, they track academics, right? Why right. Let's track injury rates. How many are breaking down when they're under your watch because uh, a lot of these very few injuries, the contact injuries, that's different, but the non-contact injuries and then the muscle pulls and the overuse stuff, that is very, very, it's very easy to reduce that. And that a lot, that, that is not bad luck. And so many coaches just want to chalk that up to bad luck. And it usually isn't, especially if you're seeing athletes that having the same injury around you. That's not, that's not bad luck. Yeah. So. Uh, so many good things there, man. Um, and just interesting to walk through both the reduction of primary, but also the reduction of secondary injuries, because I think people probably listening to this are in that, maybe that second boat, like I'm, I'm about to return to play and like, how do I navigate that process? And I think those are really good things that you had just mentioned about, um, you know, getting better testing or seeking out better testing if you don't feel like you're getting it from the physical therapist that yep. you have. I know that you guys offer even people coming in for a couple of days and getting tested and uh, getting measured that way, which is amazing. So uh, I'll make sure to link you guys in the in the notes and they can check that out on your website. Um, but the timeline and when you, when you hear that from your doctor that you're cleared, that doesn't mean that you are 100% and you should be like you should be playing in a 90 minute game or a full basketball game. It means, okay, I'm cleared from this part of the the process and there's still more to go. And I still know that I have to integrate that gray area, what you were talking of, like um, the return to sport. And um, it's, it's so, that is so key and um, just so many good things in, in what you were just saying there. Um I think there's a couple of things that I want to hit on before I let you go is one, um, when you're talking about your physical therapy company, Loris Athletic Rehab and Performance, you guys are a cash-based physical therapy place, which you had mentioned earlier why that is important to you. Well, some people are going to be able to do that. Some people aren't. But I think what is important is what should people be looking for when they're going to a physical therapist and um, maybe some key things that you've noticed in being in this uh, arena for so long that uh, people should look out for and try to get when they're, they're picking their PT. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, oh boy, that's that's a packed question. Uh, <laughs> I would say I would say the first thing would be their experience. This goes with the surgeon too. But how many ACLs do they typically rehab in a year? Okay, that that would be a a big thing because like when you're picking a surgeon, you want a surgeon who's doing well over a hundred ACLs a year. Um, you don't want the person and. Uh, this might be an old, it, it is an old, older stat. Maybe it's probably 10 years old now, but um, it used to be that 85% of orthopedic surgeons do less than 10 ACLs a year. So be picky on the surgeon. Don't pick, don't pick your rehab or your, or your, or your surgeon uh, based out of like locational convenience. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got a great one down the street, awesome. But if it takes you, you know, 40 minutes to drive across town in traffic to get to a good orthopedic, or to, or to get to a good, uh, get to a good PT or re- rehab person that, um, you know, it's worth it. So I would, I would ask how many ACLs they rehab a year. I would ask if they've got, um, you know, if they, if they've got former patients that would be willing, you know, that would be willing to, uh, that they could speak to. So, yeah. you know, I know that there's, there's people I could, you know, uh, the nice thing with, with here, I mean, my patients are kind of bumping into each other all the, all the time in here, along with the, the athletes who have never been, never been injured because they're just doing strength and conditioning. So they, they just kind of see how things go around here anyway. But, um, you know, asking, you know, asking if they've got any former patients that would be, they could, they could speak with would be a good one. Um, but then ask, and this absolutely is something I wish more people would ask. I love it when people ask me is, what is your plan? What will this rehab look like? How will you know? What are the what are the what are the criteria you're going to use to determine that I can move from one stage to the next stage to the next stage? So, because they should be able to they should be able to list that all out for you. Mm. So, I always tell people this is like a road trip from uh, you know, cross country. We're going from San Diego to New York City. And uh, this is going to be a long road trip. And yeah. these are here. Here are the criteria as we pass through the different, you know, the different stages of this trip. And this is what we're going to make the decisions based on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then that P, the PP should be um, should be using objective measurements. So they should be using stuff that isn't you know, make they're they're able to measure things with numbers. Um, not just say, oh, that looks pretty good for the reasons I said before with the whole mm-hmm. like, people can make it look good, but it isn't good. Um, so they should be, they should be, the majority of their decision making should be based on objective uh, numbers on things. Um, and then, so, and then along with the plan, the other part, the rehab, and this is hugely important because there's so much, um, there's a lot of gadgets and stuff out there yeah. um, in, in the rehab world. The, the rehab should be a very active experience. So it should look more like a college level strength and conditioning program, a good one, than it should laying around on a table and having a PT, you know, needle you or, or massage you or, you know, it should not be a passive experience. Right. So um, with range of motion stuff early on, obviously we're, we're in a PT room and we're doing some of that, but even with the range of motion stuff, I am always making sure that athletes, I'm not doing a lot of stuff for them. I'm guiding them. I'm the, I'm the tour guide. I'm, I'm going to tell them what they need to do, but they actually have to do it. So in, in, even early on on stuff, like their even range of motion stuff, I'm not doing a ton of stuff where I'm, you know, moving their leg for them. They're, they're doing, I'm telling them what to do, but it has to be an active experience. So they know that, um, 
you know, this, I'm going to get as far as what I put into it and my hard work. And this is setting up and, and that also builds the confidence part of it too. So I would say just that last piece, it needs to be a very active experience. Mm-hmm. The rehab should look more like a solid strength and conditioning program and good sports performance training, especially in the late stage rehab. Um, then it should, uh, then it would, uh, you know, just kind of a passive experience, traditional, like, uh, what you would maybe think of traditional PT as. Right. Uh, those are such good things. There's six things really, uh, six key things that you have given us right there in picking a PT and a, even a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. And I like that idea of talking to former patients, right? When you get in there and you get into a physical therapy place, you're talking to the patients all the time, but, um, cause you're always interacting, yeah. you're always cheering each other on, you know, that's really what the ACL yep. club kind of started as, is I was rehabbing with these people and we were like each other's biggest cheerleaders. And I was like, this is amazing what we can do, um, how we can support each other through this process. But, um, to, even getting those that insight before you even get in the door, I think, is really key. And and giving athletes ownership of their process and their process of choosing their orthopedic surgeon, their physical therapist, but then also giving the empowering them as they return to play to challenge their coaches and their teammates to implement a risk reduction program and say, hey, I'm a good case of why this should be done, right? Like, I don't want anybody to go through what I just went through. And I think um, empowering these athletes who have unfortunately gone through an ACL to say, hey, I could be the change within my team that helps other people um, maybe not have to go through what I went through. I think that could be really powerful too. Absolutely. Um, I would never wish this injury upon anyone, Mm -hmm. but there's always, uh, people usually say, I don't know if you feel the same way on it. I, you know, they never want to go through it again, but they, they're, they, they are glad, or I don't know if the word's glad, but they're, they have learned things Mm -hmm. that have been so valuable through the process that they wouldn't have learned any other way. Um, and I, the, and one of it sometimes is advocating for yourself. I don't know if there's, I don't think there's a better thing that you can teach, especially, any person but especially a female athlete of uh, that to speak up you know speak up and advocate for yourself um i just had a basketball player who uh went back to to play in varsity basketball she's got her whole team now doing doing the warm-up i told her she needs to get in before her before her team uh does their warm-up so um and now she's got the whole team doing it that is you know so, so cool. stuff like that is is, is awesome yeah so awesome but i think and to kind of go on to add on to this though too um parents athletes especially but parents um you know they need to start advocating for their for their players with youth clubs of getting coaches telling like really making a point that it's important to them that their athletes um are doing these warm-ups because of all the great research behind them on the effectiveness of it that's that's it, it cuts the the, the risk 50 percent across the board for male and female it's, it's at 67 percent for female non-contact um so it's great for guys too but um you know i don't know any other situation where you're in charge of the well-being of people if if, if you were if, well yeah. i think amazon just actually got in trouble for this their, their factory workers are getting overworked and they're having more injuries than almost anyone else. Hmm. Why are you, why are youth clubs, if they're having injury epidemics, why is that just suddenly just taught? Like, why are people not saying like, you know, you have a responsibility. Yeah. 
I mean, you have, a, you have a responsibility to emotionally take care of these players. You know, it's not acceptable acceptable to, you know, emotionally abuse them. Right. Um, well, why are we physically, you know, you know, if there's if players are breaking down and having all these injuries, and I'm not saying that there's just people littered in the streets on youth soccer fields right. by any means, but, you know, if there's just multiple injuries happening all the time, and we know that there's a way to, to you know, not prevent them, but reduce uh, more of them, um, in a big way, you know, youth clubs should be on the hook for that. That that should and the good ones are. The good ones are. They're they're making it a priority to make. They understand, you know, like, hey, we are here to take, right. you know, for, to take care of that, the the well being of our players. But I wish I wish athletes would speak up more for that when choosing a club, and I wish parents would be. Um, I, no one can ever fault a parent for looking out for the physical well being mm-hmm. of their of their player, and they're paying the money for it. So yeah. I just wish more people would do that. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I think that that's great. And, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. One of the things I did before we started the combo is I just put it out to all of our followers on on Instagram that we were going to be chatting. And, uh, I have some questions from them that, um, we can go through really quickly before I let you go. Um, Andrea Gomez 10 wants to know, uh, how, why is it important and to redefine success in the recovery process and maybe changing that a little bit, like how do you redefine success? Ooh, well, um, hmm. I guess it's, I'm, the thing I'm hung up on is just how, well, what is success defined yeah. with to begin with? Is it right. winning? Is it college scholarship? What is it? You know? So I think that's um, a good point. And I think that success yeah, is, so, is getting your leg around the bike one time, you know, like I think success yeah. is the little wins that you maybe accomplish throughout the whole process. Right. That, and that's kind of where I was going at. It was the goal part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think what it really does is help you help you look at small picture, big picture things. And then um, the importance of goal setting um, is huge. And the, uh, the one thing I guess would be, redefining a there's a I don't know if you've ever heard of growth mindset versus yeah. fixed mindset mm-hmm. fixed, fixed mindset is just like uh out very outcome orient oriented um where I think a lot of times through through this rehab process is going to push people to be process oriented but if they're process oriented and they're and they're they're just they're focusing on the things they can control um you know that's going to help them out in the long term for when they get back to the field or just even in life when they have to it you know when they when they over when they um come across obstacles in their life and if you're process oriented you're going to have a much better skill set to be able to deal with that learn from that and grow from that than if you were a fixed mindset and it was just either a black and white i'm either i'm either in you know i'm either injury prone or i'm not or i'm a you know i'm a soccer player or i'm not or you know, this that you're it's more black and white. So right. I I think uh, if they if it can help them redefine the way they approach things, that's just that's a in a in a weird twisted sort of way, you're gonna be at an advantage over people that never went through that. Um, and didn't learn that that process. Exactly what you're just talking about, right? And how people, we never want anybody to go through this, but what you learn in the process is something that will help you in not only this rehab, but in life. Yeah. Uh, and sure. and I, I don't know, some of these, I'm not sure if you can give recommendations. I don't know the legalities of, of physical therapy, but this, this one girl, that underscore field, was saying in weeks three through weeks 12, um, just some 
workout recommendations for staying fit in the early stages of recovery? Um, yeah, a lot of it kind of depends on what was done with surgery uh-huh. um, in uh, typical situations. But on a typical typical first ACL, um, no other big, no other issues going on with the bone, the cartilage, right? Um, that sort of stuff. No other ligaments. Um, the big, the big thing would be getting full range of motion. You should definitely be getting full range of motion in that four to six week. We try to get it at four weeks. Um, normalizing, you know, walking gait and that sort of thing. I use the bike a lot. I mm-hmm. use bike intervals a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's usually a fairly safe thing once you once you're able to to get around on that bike. Um, and then, um, I mean, I I do a lot of it. I mean, it looks like a it's it's not oh it's it starts with body weight um, yeah but it's we're getting in and, and we're doing a lot of strengthening right um i mean and it's a, it's a total body workout yeah so, and i um, tell people too like one. i think one of the hard things is you go from being an athlete to being inactive or what you feel like is inactive but yeah um there, there are things that you can still do to like try to get that little sense of, of, of dopamine from the physical activity, yeah. right? Like, can you get a, can you sit on a bench and with your leg in a safe position and get an upper body workout or a core workout Absolutely. that's not, that's not affecting your leg? Like those things, even though you feel like it's not what you would want to be doing at least it's giving you a little bit of a sense of like I'm still am an athlete it's still there um and in tapping into that yeah in that four to 12 week mark for me that's a it's a huge strength phase and by huge I don't necessarily mean heavy mm-hmm. at first you're able to manage body weight and do all that sort of stuff well and then we start to build resistance into it obviously but yeah train around the injury so you can get a really good total body work in um, even though it's your leg, you still can do a ton of other things. And it might be something like sitting, sitting on a bench or a box, like maybe at the end of your workout, sitting on a bench or a box and, and battle ropes, you know, even yeah. though you're sitting down. Yeah. But I mean, you can, you know, if you really want to get the sweat and the feel of like, like, you know, like, you know, you just really want to get that heart rate up, yeah. um, you know, battle ropes in intervals, there's probably not a better way, but I like, uh. Uh, the bike is one thing that bike intervals is something sure. I definitely like because it builds your quad. It's good for range of motion. It's non-weight, you know, it's partial weight bearing. Yeah. So you're not putting, you know, it's really knee friendly. Um, so typically if there's not other stuff going on, I like to do that. Oh, the bike was my best friend for five years. Still do a lot of biking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it is. Yeah. It's so okay. good for you. And um, I, I think the last one I'm going to go to here, and I think I'm going to kind of adapt this question. Maria R.B. wants to know, um, how long does it hurt? And I think this is important because I think athletes or people going through ACL rehab, um, there's a differentiation, right, between pain that is like good pain and that you have to work through. Like range of motion is really painful. Newsflash, if you haven't been there, people, it hurts like heck. But there is other pain that but you have to work through it. There's other pain that you have to yeah. like start to differentiate. And um, how do you tell your athletes to differentiate those types of pains? Or is it, um, you know, you talked earlier about gut feelings and I'm really big into gut feelings and like what your gut is telling you, okay, is this good pain or bad pain? And um, maybe listening mm-hmm. to what your body is telling you about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, I usually do like a stoplight system. So if you, uh, mm-hmm. on a zero to 10 scale, so zero is no pain. 
10 is uh, the worst pain ever, right? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of divide that scale kind of sort of into thirds. So like a a zero to three to four-ish, that's typically a green light. Mm -hmm. So pain pain in there is, and that's that's acceptable. Eventually we want it to go away entirely, obviously, but the three to four-ish range is acceptable. Zero to three to four-ish is acceptable. Five to six, five to six to seven in there, that you, you just need to be you need to be careful that's kind of your yellow light so on a and just like i love doing this with uh with people who have just gotten their license or about <laughs> to get their license but yeah. you know like what, what does a yellow light mean a yellow <laughs> light means you got to be careful yeah so so that team be careful because it shouldn't push any higher and then that that eight nine ten i that that should not be happening that that's a red light mm-hmm. so stop and i know on range of motion on my when i work range of motion with with athletes i don't even i we go to a seven yeah. Um, and then we try to get, so I never force them into like this, like this 10 out of 10 pain. Right. Um, earlier as a PT, probably stupider with stuff would force that a little bit more on range of motion. But now I, it, everything's about a seven. Um, and then we try to get for range of motion stuff specifically. We try to, I always tell them it's kind of like pushing a donkey up a hill. If, if you, you got to guide it. So we do a lot of repetition on stuff and we try to guide it. So we get into more range or more uh, range of motion uh, than trying to force anything. Yeah. Because if you try to force a donkey, you try to push a donkey, it's going to push back at you. Mm-hmm. So then everyone just gets frustrated and frustrated and mad. So, um, but then as rehab is going on, your pain should be, your pain should typically be trending down. So once you get through that range of motion, that post-surgical pain, it should be trending down. Um, but knowing that you're probably going to start increasing the stress to the knee as you enter new phases. So there might be small spikes in pain, um, meaning it's getting into that yellow light, but it should generally be staying green light or less. As you get stronger, typically the pain starts to go away, provided you're also, provided you're also giving yourself enough rest time on stuff. So two, uh, two good uh, rules of thought or guidelines on pain management. Um, pain should not stay, pain should not stick around. Pain and swelling should really not be sticking around for more than 24 hours. If it is, you're stressing it too much. Mm. Okay. So, uh, but you do need the stress because the stress does cause adaptation. So if you're not stressing it, that's also not going to help you. So you right. got to play the game in the middle ground there. And then the other thing, um, and then just kind of keep that stoplight system in play. The green, some pain is okay because, like, you're going to – if you're playing soccer and you weren't injured or any other sport, I'm only using soccer here, but you're going to have aches and pains because if you had a hard practice, there's going to be some stuff that, that gets sore. But it should go away then eventually. You know, it shouldn't be sticking around all the time. And right. It shouldn't be, like, you know, red light pain. The other thing, which I don't know she might have been getting at, um, the, the knee – Knees typically do not feel completely quote unquote normal till about two years. So there's like a two year process of, of that knee getting sore and then, and then recovering back and then getting sore and then recovering back. If it's constantly trending worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and things are getting sharper and more painful, you need to get that checked out. If it's constantly swelling up, they need to get that checked out. But for it to be like, well, I just, a skier just texted me this morning because he's got a time trial tonight and he's like, Last night, he's like, my knee really got sore, and I think it swelled up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he goes, should I be concerned? And I said, hey, I go, just come in tomorrow morning. We'll, che- we'll check it out. But, it, but you know, some of that is just getting back to, you know, I'm, I'm sure yeah. his practices are starting to get tougher now. And he's pushing it, you know, he's pushing that knee. 
you know, and it just, I can't replicate that in rehab. So that's part of like why that late stage rehab is really important because you do have to stress it. And then if you, if you manage that and let it rest, then in between, um, you know, then it'll adapt and keep getting stronger. So the next time he does the exact same workout on the ski slope, it's not going to hurt the next time. Mm. So. I love that. I think that's a really, no, I think that's a really good point because it does, you know, I'm, I'm telling people all the time that, um, it, it, it takes a while for your knee to feel like it can handle everything again. And, um, that you are going to have these little ups and downs and these, it's not a linear path to getting back to feeling like hundred percent you, and you have to, um, you know, have that communication with your physical therapist and say, Hey, it is swollen. It's a little, it's sore and, and be able be okay to say that to them. And then them, um, have that communication back with you because that is building that confidence, that trust and, um, helping you get back to where you want to be too. So this has been a great conversation, Julie, and I'm just so thankful for everything that you're doing in the sports world and, and trying to help all these athletes return to play and never have to go through, um, what I went through, which is really, um, you know, this, this injury, changes so many things and it can be for the better like you said and there's so much growth in it um but empowering them to know that uh they can do this once and and get back to who they want to be and by working with them and all the stuff that you're doing it's just it's great to see that and really thankful for it well i thank you for the opportunity um and yeah with these injuries i i hate when sport went from being like something that is so awesome in people's lives to being the bane of their existence because Mm -hmm. of injuries and repeat injuries and stuff, which has been the big motivator. But I want to thank you for all the work you've done on this and for with, with, you know, like just offering a platform for, for athletes to feel like they're not alone on stuff for those that have gone through the rehab, but then also, um, you know, like to advocate that, you know, for, for especially, you know, young athletes that, that, can, can we get to a point where we can educate and keep pushing things forward so that, you know, we are doing things that can, you know, reduce the, the significantly reduce these injuries from happening in the first place. So right. coaches can be happier. Parents can be happier. Athletes are a lot happier. The, the only people that probably aren't happy would be the orthopedic surgeons <laughs> and the PTs. Yeah. So we'll, we'll find something else to do. You'll so. be happy though. But thank you so much for, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for the, for the opportunity. Oh, I'm, I'm so thankful. Thank you for saying all those, those kind of things. Um, I know you said you never tore your ACL, but you've got to have scars. And this podcast is called show your scars. So the last thing I always ask everybody is, um, what does show your scars mean to you? Or maybe since you work with athletes who are scarred all the time, um, what have you seen their, how have their scars transformed them? little double oh, question yeah on the Holy spot. Cow. I don't know I'm I'm big on I think uh when you say scar I think um um I think you know difficulty um and I think you know there's so many things that in life in general um that if they can understand that difficulties actually happen for them um and that is such a huge life lesson. There's actually a whole book written on that, written on that by uh, Sandra Campos. So there's a book called Beyond Grit. I give it out to uh, I gave it out to our seniors last year that trained here, 
um, and then went off to college. But I mean, I, I'm a small business owner, you know, I have the ups and downs and stuff. I, you know, a college career, I got redshirted when I didn't think I was going to get redshirted. Like everyone has disappointments and everyone mm-hmm. has uh, obstacles in their life. Um, so I think, you know, to me, the, you know, showing the scars is like showing your success afterwards. Like, mm. what did you use that difficult situation that, to then push you forward? I guess for me now, it's, it's doing something that I really enjoy. From the athletes that I've worked with, I've had so many that um, have come back and said, like, you know what, I, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing this with my life now that I, I didn't think I ever was going to be able to do, but it, you know, the confidence I got through the rehab process, um, you know, has, has really uh, kind of given me the, the, the push to, to, to go forward and try things that I didn't think I could do. I have a lot of people that I've had a lot of former patients that have gone on to PA school or PT school and some going on to med school. And I, one of my first, actually my first person that I rehabbed as Loris was actually a, a club player of mine who went on to have she had two ACL injuries in high school, and then she went on to be captain of her, of her, of the college team, uh, Division One. Mm-hmm. But um, she's now she's now a PA, and she hated blood and everything when she first started. Um, <laughs> and she she just has a hugely she is such on on such a hugely successful career track right now, and that's more fun than anything. Yeah. So. Um, just just seeing that how it springboards and forward. I so. love that your scars really are like a just a little indication of our our strength and what we've been through and I love the way that you just put it so um Julie thank you so much I'm going to link everything so people know how to find you I'm just so grateful for what you do and thanks for taking an hour and a half of your time to talk to me (laughs) (laughs) you bet thank you I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. What good information and tips and so many things from Julie. You could just feel the passion, right? How much she has invested her life into this and how much it means to her to see her athletes succeed after coming to her and working with her at Loras Athletic Rehab and Performance. So I will link Julie. I will link her PT place in Minnesota in the show notes and you can check them out too if you're returning to play and you need uh, some testing done as julie said they've got a lot of gadgets they've got a lot of things to help you figure out if you are ready to go so thanks to julie thank you to you guys for submitting some questions through instagram there's always going to be an opportunity now in this new format with the podcast where i'm going to ask questions and you can ask on instagram and they could be part of the podcast. So make sure you share this, post it on your stories. We'll repost everything that we see. We're just so thankful for this community. Thankful for you guys for listening. And as always, go out there and show your scars with pride.